can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, train, train. And that was an excerpt of Vinnie Paz singing Writings on Disobedience and Democracy. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism. Activism like that of Rachel Curry in Gaza. If you want to check out all the back episodes or send me a message, just go to youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll also find links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. Look into the future See the light that shines there See the world that we make A world free of warfare Where everybody wants the same Thanks A place to safe and loved in and wait look into the future see the light that shines there though it seems that she's gone I think she will be there There with a dispossessed Still looking for home With the underdog refugees And the hungry
my fallen heroes I offer up a brief prayer When it seems that you're gone I know you will be Daryl Purpose from the album Next Time Around. That was Song for Rachel Corey. This is an email written by Rachel Corey to her mother on February 27, 2003. You can find this and other writings from Rachel at rachelcoreyfoundation.org. Love you. Really miss you. I have bad nightmares about tanks and bulldozers outside our house and you and me inside. Sometimes the adrenaline acts as an anesthetic for weeks, and then in the evening or at night, it just hits me again. A little bit of the reality of the situation. I'm really scared for the people here. Yesterday I watched a father lead his two tiny children holding his hands out into the sight of tanks and a sniper tower and bulldozers and jeeps because he thought his house was going to be exploded. Jenny and I stayed in the house with several women and two small babies. It was our mistake in translation that caused him to think it was his house that was being exploded. In fact, the Israeli army was in the process of detonating an explosive in the ground nearby, one that appears to have been planted by Palestinian resistance. This is in the area where Sunday about 150 men were rounded up and contained outside the settlement with gunfire over their heads and around them, while tanks and bulldozers destroyed 25 greenhouses, the livelihoods for 300 people. The explosive was right in front of the greenhouses, right in the point of entry for tanks that might come back again. I was terrified to think that this man felt it was less of a risk to walk out in view of the tanks with his kids than to stay in his house. I was really scared that they were going to be shot, and I tried to stand between them and the tank. This happens every day, but just this father walking out with his two little kids just looking very sad just happened to get my attention more at this particular moment probably because I felt it was our translation problems that made him leave. I thought a lot about what you said on the phone about Palestinian violence not helping the situation. 60,000 workers from Rafah worked in Israel two years ago. Now only 600 can go to Israel for jobs. Of these 600, many have moved because the three checkpoints between here 
and Ashkelon, the closest city in Israel, make what used to be a 40-minute drive now a 12-hour or impassable journey. In addition, what Rafa identified in 1999 as sources of economic growth are all completely destroyed. The Gaza International Airport, runways demolished, totally closed. The border for trade with Egypt, now with a giant Israeli sniper tower in the middle of the crossing. Access to the ocean, completely cut off in the last two years by a checkpoint in the Gush Katif settlement. The count of homes destroyed in Rafah since the beginning of this intifada is up around 600. By and large, people with no connection to the resistance, but who happen to live along the border. I think it is maybe official now that Rafa is the poorest place in the world. There used to be a middle class here, recently. We also get reports that in the past, Gazan flour shipments to Europe were delayed for two weeks at the Erez crossing for security inspections. You can imagine the value of two-week-old cut flowers in the European market, so that market dried up. And then the bulldozers come and take out people's vegetable farms and gardens. What is left for people? Tell me if you can think of anything. I can't. If any of us had our lives and welfare completely strangled, lived with children in a shrinking place where we knew, because of previous experience, that soldiers and tanks and bulldozers could come for us at any moment and destroy all the greenhouses that we had been cultivating for however long, and did this while some of us were beaten and held, held captive with 149 other people for several hours? Do you think we might try to use somewhat violent means to protect whatever fragments remained? I think about this especially when I see orchards and greenhouses and fruit trees destroyed, just years of care and cultivation. I think about you and how long it takes to make things grow and what a labor of love it is. I really think in a similar situation, most people would defend themselves as best they could. I think Uncle Craig would. I think probably Grandma would. I think I would. You asked me about nonviolent resistance. When that explosive detonated yesterday, it broke all the windows in the family's house. I was in the process of being served tea and playing with the two small babies. I'm having a hard time right now. Just feel sick to my stomach a lot from being being doted on all the time, very sweetly, by people who are facing doom. I know that from the United States it all sounds like hyperbole. Honestly, a lot of the time the sheer kindness of the people here, coupled with the overwhelming evidence of the willful destruction of their lives, makes it seem unreal to me. I really can't believe that something like this can happen in the world without a bigger outcry about it. It really hurts me, again, like it has hurt me in the past, to witness how awful we can allow the world to be. I felt after talking to you that maybe you didn't completely believe me. I think it's actually good if you don't, because I do believe pretty much above all else the importance of independent critical thinking. And I also realize that with you I'm much less careful than usual about trying to source every assertion that I make. 
a lot of the reason for that is that I know you actually do go and do your own research. But it makes me worry about the job I'm doing. All of the situation that I tried to enumerate above and a lot of other things constitutes a somewhat gradual, often hidden, but nevertheless massive removal and destruction of the ability of a particular group of people to survive. This is what I'm seeing here. The assassinations, rocket attacks, the shooting of children are atrocities. But in focusing on them, I'm terrified of missing their context. The vast majority of people here, even if they had the economic means to escape, even if they actually wanted to give up resisting on their land and just leave, which appears to be maybe the less nefarious of Sharon's possible goals, can't leave. Because they can't even get into Israel to apply for visas, and because their destination countries won't let them in, both our country and Arab countries. So I think when all means of survival is cut off in a pen like Gaza, which people can't get out of, I think that qualifies as genocide. Even if they could get out, I think it would still qualify as genocide. Maybe you could look up the definition of genocide according to international law. I don't remember it right now. I'm going to get better at illustrating this, hopefully. I don't like to use those charged words. I think you know this about me. I really value words. I really try to illustrate and let people draw their own conclusions. Anyway, I'm rambling. Just want to write to my mom and tell her that I'm witnessing this chronic, insidious genocide, and I'm really scared, and questioning my fundamental belief in the goodness of human nature. This has to stop. I think it is a good idea for us all to drop everything and devote our lives to making this stop. I don't think it's an extremist thing to do anymore. I still really want to dance around to Pat Benatar and have boyfriends and make comics for my co-workers. But I also want this to stop. Disbelief and horror is what I feel. Disappointment. I am disappointed that this is the base reality of our world and that we, in fact, participate in it. This is not at all what I asked for when I came into this world. This is not at all what the people here asked for when they came into this world. This is not the world you and Dad wanted me to come into when you decided to have me. This is not what I meant when I looked at Capital Lake and said, this is the wide world and I'm coming to it. I did not mean that I was coming into a world where I could live a comfortable life and possibly, with no effort at all, exist in complete unawareness of my participation in genocide. More big explosions somewhere in the distance outside. When I come back from Palestine, I probably will have nightmares and constantly feel guilty for not being here. But I can channel that into more work. Coming here is one of the better things I've ever done. So when I sound crazy, or if the Israeli military should break with their racist tendency not to injure white people, please pin the reason squarely on the fact 
that I am in the midst of a genocide which I am also indirectly supporting and for which my government is largely responsible. I love you and Dad. Sorry for the diatribe. Okay. Some strange men next to me just gave me some peas, so I need to eat them and thank them. Rachel. This next piece is written by Tevier and is published at dailycause.com. That's dailycos.com. As part of my desire to keep the memory alive of a fallen comrade, a true champion of the downtrodden. I post a diary here every year on the day of her murder. So my brothers and sisters can also know her, keep her, and protect her in their hearts. In this one, I venture deeper and rawer because of the growth shared with this community. On this, the 18th anniversary of her death, it's part of my grieving process, which seems to be getting more emotional as the years pass by. I deeply thank you for your indulgence. And a trigger warning for my equally sensitive brethren. I don't like to bring sadness here when there is already so much. I want you to know her. This is who she was. At two o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, March 16th, 2003, Rachel Corey received a phone call from a comrade from the International Solidarity Movement saying that the Israelis were heading to Dr. Samir's house. Samir Nasrallah was a Palestinian pharmacist who lived with his wife and three children yards from the Egyptian border in the Gaza Strip town of Rafa, and had befriended many of the activists, mostly young people, that came from a dozen countries from around the world. Many were Jewish. Rachel and other activists had frequently spent the night in Samir's home, acting as human shields against the Israeli tanks and bulldozers, clearing a security zone around the border. Almost every other structure had been knocked down. Samir's home now stood alone. It wasn't just homes that she and her comrades protected. They acted as human shields as municipal construction workers were rebuilding a well that was vital to the area and destroyed by the Israeli Defense Forces. Municipal workers were killed by Israeli Defense Force snipers, hence the need for a human shield. Wearing a bright orange jacket and with a megaphone in her hand, she was killed while standing in the path of a bulldozer that was about to demolish the Nasrallah home. She was run over twice by the bulldozer. Fractured skull, punctured lungs, shattered ribs. She died in pain surrounded by her stunned comrades and numb locals. A dozen witnesses from four countries insisted 
that the driver, a Russian immigrant, smiled as he came for her with deliberation. When he ran over her for a second time, he turned his head and, through the rearview window, gave the horrified spectators a thumbs up. Her parents filed a civil lawsuit in 2005 against the State of Israel, charging Israel with not conducting a full and credible investigation into the case that she was intentionally killed or that the soldiers had acted with reckless neglect for a symbolic one dollar. No one was surprised when the court upheld the military investigation's decision. Judge Oded Gershon called Corey's death a, quote, regrettable accident. She did not distance herself from the area as any thinking person would have done. She consciously put herself in harm's way. The accident had been self-inflicted, he added. He also mentioned that the U.S. had issued an Israel travel advisory warning to its citizens to avoid Gaza and the West Bank. In my perspective, the travel advisory warning was issued for, among other reasons, so Americans and Europeans could not see the incredible injustice. So there would be few outside witnesses. And without these witnesses, to needless brutality, to innocence, and without regulation, and without outcry, it could commence. The same warnings were placed in Soweto in my time there. I ignored both warnings and witnessed what I will never forget in Israel in South Africa. Rachel went to Rafa to connect it with her hometown of Olympia, Washington in a sister cities project as part of her senior year college assignment. She witnessed injustice on a scale unknown to her. I can relate. As an American Jew, my initial visits to my ancestral homeland sobered me entirely. I was right there in Rafa, 20 feet away from a seven-year-old boy when his arm was shot off his body by an IDF sniper for having the temerity to show his face in the sunshine. I was right there when his parents looked at each other the moment after it happened, and his father went forth to grab his son and reach for the tiny arm laying in the dust and blood. He too was shot in the shoulder. The screams, the screams that I still hear 18 years later, the screams that still wake me up at night, the indescribable feeling of doom and evil, of hell, the indescribable feeling of impotence for not being able to stop it. Wearing my yarmulke and an American flag armband, I ran out to help them back, reciting the Shema over and over as I did so. I knew that being killed was possible. Israeli troops had shot and killed several peace activists, including, but not limited, to British United Nations worker Ian Hook, Dr. Harold Fisher from Germany, cameraman Raffaele Sorello from Italy. I knew that from October of 2000 to that day in March of 2003, over 2,000 Palestinians, almost half of them children, 
had been killed by armed settlers in the IDF and over 20,000 injured. Should I be grateful that I wasn't shot? I still occasionally wonder about that sniper. What was he aiming at? Why was he aiming at it? Did he not have a little brother? Was he human? Was he a demon masquerading in the flesh of a human? Why? Why? I was shaken to my core, the fact that the perps were fellow Jews I am still trying to reconcile. As did my Caucasian South African friends tried to reconcile their feelings at that time and in that place. I've been an international aid relief worker for over half my life, and by that time, in 2003, I had seen and tried to relieve the suffering and plight of many brothers and sisters trying to survive the aftermath of armed conflict and flight, famine, and natural disasters in locales with little infrastructure to rebuild. But I, I had consciously avoided the injustices in the Israeli-Palestine conflict until the stories relayed by trusted comrades and friends made that impossible. I started venturing into the Strip. There was an understandable mistrust of me in the beginning. Because of my yarmulke, the symbol of the enemy. But I came with their allies, and after I put myself as a shield and an advocate time and again against young Israeli soldiers, getting manhandled, spit on, and beaten by IDF batons till the color of my kippah turned different colors from the blood. Well, that sealed the deal. They too have been manhandled, beaten, and spit on. Sleeping in the homes of members of the community, I was there when tanks came, when explosions shook the homes, when awoken by screams. I saw the terror in the eyes of the old and young alike. My brothers and sisters were in a great plight. And now it was my plight. I knew what Rachel was feeling all too potently. To be a witness, to render whatever service your heart and circumstances lead you to do, and then the luxury of returning back home to La La Land. It was then that I met Rachel on a handful of occasions, and each time I made her laugh, which, considering the inner trials we were all going through, especially those that had witnessed death and injustice, didn't come so freely. Once we laughed so hard that afterwards she thanked me for the, quote, oasis in the desert, the tonic. I was in another town when I got the call that day and was told of her death. I screamed in grief and anger, and I cried, oh, I cried. I cried for the pain she must have felt, for her stolen future, for her parents, for her friends and family, for those she won't be there to help protect, for the world that she will no longer be in to render aid. And I cried for the people, my people who killed her. 
Do you know the feeling that you have when you feel shock or surprise at an act, yet at the very same moment you aren't shocked or surprised in the least? I got to Rafa in the middle of the night. The IDF refused us entry, so we walked six miles to get in, silent and deep in thought. I and two comrades were led into where Rachel was, at the Al-Najjar Hospital, wrapped in an American flag. I saw her precious and broken face. Two of us, the males, started to cry, whilst our strong sister was just too numb to cry. I walked outside to throw up. We spent the night at a local family's home. I woke early and walked outside. At that moment, I wanted nothing to do with the people that did this to her, and I took off my yarmulke and I threw it as far as I could into the dirt. A young Muslim boy wearing a taqiyya was watching this with members of his family. He walked over and picked it up, and whilst brushing it off, walked over to where I was sitting on the ground and clipped it back on my head. He then said, according to my friends, that had come out to join me and could speak the language gently and with a smile and wet eyes. They took your friend. Don't allow them to take God away from you as well. As a mutual friend of ours wrote, I wish I had been closer to her because from her writing an intelligent, compassionate, and complex figure emerges. Within a short time, she was aware of the complexity, the nuance, the conflicts of the situation. Please do as she did and put the humanity back into how you think about other people. We are all individuals with families, hopes, dreams, loves, fears, and the abilities to do amazing things in the world. I haven't returned to Israel since 2003 and have no intention of ever doing so. Until the militaristic Likud party is ousted from power and the change of a mindset of a large populace that chose them as their representatives. Where did they learn this dehumanization of others? Where did they learn the arrogance and smugness of a jut-jawed bully and efficiency? And from whom? The realization of that answer chills me to my marrow. Reminded me in many ways with the apartheid era South Africa, where and when I also spent valuable time in a time of injustice and in a time of change. I can't reconcile the attitudes with what I have learned from my teachings of Judaism. I was raised what it was to be a Jew, to crave and fight for social justice and equality, wherever that may lead, including one's own backyard or one's own heart. To live the words of the prophets, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. And let your neighbor's property be as dear as your own, and let your neighbor's honor be as dear as your own. And you shall not rejoice as your enemy falls, you shall not exult when your enemy stumbles, you shall not hate another in your heart, 
but love your neighbor as yourself. What I experienced proved to me that what I witnessed went way beyond self-defense. It veered straight into mass collective punishment. It was a large-scale version of the Stanford Prison Experiment in the injustice that is inherent in such. Her presence would have done so much to enrich the world in many ways it already has, to be a clear example for all of us to follow your heart, inner principles, and let that be your guiding light. We both have had a form of survivor's guilt, as do many activists and aid workers that have the, again, luxury to return from a physical war zone and move beyond it. She has come to be known as a great diarist as she never, never stopped writing. She told me that she had never had the words come out and express themselves so effortlessly as her time here. Her most powerful work for me came out in a book of her essays, started as a child and ending just a day before her death, entitled, Let Me Stand Alone. Indeed, in her own words, two weeks before her death. We are all born, and someday we'll all die, most likely to some degree alone. But what if our aloneness isn't a tragedy? What if our aloneness is what allows us to speak the truth without being afraid? What if our aloneness is what allows us to adventure, to experience the world as a dynamic presence, as a changeable interactive thing? If I lived in Bosnia, or Rwanda, or who knows where else, needless death wouldn't be a distant symbol to me. It wouldn't be a metaphor. It would be reality. And I have no right to this metaphor, but I use it to console myself, to give a fraction of meaning to something enormous and needless. This realization, this realization that I will live my life in this world where I have privileges. I can't cool boiling waters in Russia. I can't be Picasso. I can't be Jesus. I can't save the planet single-handedly. I can wash dishes, fetch water, and do my part. Rachel was 23. An Israeli bulldozer killed poor Rachel Curry as she stood in its path in the township of Rafa. She lost her young life in an act of compassion, trying to protect the poor people of Gaza whose homes are destroyed by tank shells and bulldozers and whose plight is exploited by suicide bombers who kill in the name of the people of Gaza but Rachel Curry believed in non-violent resistance put herself in harm's way as a shield of the people and paid with her life in a manner most brutal but you who 
philosophize disgrace and criticize our fears. Take the rag away from your face, cause now ain't the time for your tears. Rachel Curry had 23 years. She was born in the town of Olympia, Washington, a skinny, messy, list-making chain smoker who volunteered to protect the Palestinian people who had become non-persons in the eyes of the media so that people were suffering and no one was seeing or hearing or talking caring or acting and the horrible math of the awful equation that brought Rachel Curry into this confrontation is that the spilled blood of a single American is worth more than the blood of a hundred Palestinians but you Philosophize disgrace and criticize our fears. Take the rag away from your face, cause now ain't the time for your tears. The artistic director of a New York theater canceled a play based on Rachel's writings but she wasn't a bomber or a killer or a fighter but one who acted in the spirit of the Freedom Riders is there no place for such a voice in America that doesn't conform to the Fox News agenda who believes in non-violence instead of brute force who is willing to confront the might of an army whose passionate beliefs were matched by her bravery and the question she asked rings out round the world if America is truly the beacon of freedom, then how can it stand by while they bring down the curtain and turn Rachel Curry into a non-person? Oh, but you philosophize disgrace criticize our fears bury the rag deep in your face cause now is the time for your tears